Hey, Real Nerds listeners. There's many ways you can interact with the Real Nerds podcast. You can email us at realnerds at gmail.com. You can hit us on Twitter at Real Nerds. You want to check us on Facebook? You can. Just look for Real Nerds Podcast. You want to leave us a voicemail? Just call 720-6NERDS5. You want to listen to our episodes? You can check us out on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast. And for 10 years, we've gone to the movies and podcasted our experience to the world. This week, we saw Cruella. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where we will talk about the movie and then play the trailer and then go into spoiler territory on it. Uh, before that, we do what's going on around town, DVD and Blu-ray releases, uh, movie news, and what we've been watching. And with me this week is Corinne. Hello. And Zach. Howdy ho, everybody out there in Radio Land. Ryan is on a vacation, so. Well, it's all he ever wanted. Vacation. How could he get away? This isn't a music podcast. Stop. It could be if we wanted it to be. Um, yeah, so it's just us for this week. Um, two of us saw this movie four weeks ago, so. Um, <laughs> and one of us saw it five minutes ago. <laughs> And one of us saw it five minutes ago, so this is going to be an interesting we're, review. We're going to be relying on Zach to really carry this conversation and oh, remind guys, us of exactly what happened in this movie. Corinne, what have we talked about? You don't rely on me for jack shit. Well, you got to step up to the plate someday. All right. That's right. Batter up, motherfucker. Let's do this. Let's talk about some Cruella de Vil. Uh, but Brad, what else do we do on this show? Uh... I mean, I, I covered all of it. Uh, sometimes we ask each other what we've been up to. Uh, what do you? What, how's your week been, Zach? It's been fine. It's been getting back into the saddle of getting some Ballyhoo recorded after filming a short film, and um, yeah, I'm also working on a book now. So that's fun. That's uh, that's the research materials have been acquired, and then there's stuff that I'm currently waiting for. I had to go back to the library for the first time since the pandemic and uh, make an interlibrary loan for a book in Wyoming because I'm not paying $200 for an autobiography that was published in the 70s. So uh, use the library system as Corinne is always touting. And so I took her advice and I did it. Um, uh, So yeah, it's it's been pretty cool. But Corinne has not been on here for a little bit. Corinne, what have you been up to? Oh, I mean, some stuff. I'm not sure if anything's really fancy or exciting, but uh, just been fancy. (laughs) Just been playing some volleyball and watching some stuff about volleyball, which I'll explain in a bit. But no, it's uh, been a nice long weekend. Should we start a real nerds volleyball league now? Sure, why not? That'd be cool. Yeah, six of us. That is true. Well, one of them would have to volleyball virtually because he's in New York, but and one would have to stop raising his kids, <laughs> which he's not going to do. <laughs> I was playing volleyball with some people, and they had their kids with them. I mean, not on the court, but you know, nearby. You know what, though, Brad? We've tried getting James to come down for Film Explosion One Hundred. I've even enticed him with a ballyhoo for um, two sci-fi movies that he clearly loves. 
maybe volleyball is the thing that will coax him out of uh, semi-retirement there. I mean, if sitting in a chair and staring at a computer screen with a headset is too hard for him, I don't know how successful you're going to be at getting him to like move around and hit a ball. I mean, we haven't, we don't know. That could be like a secret thing that he's always wanted to overcome and tackle in his life is playing volleyball. You know, like it's just like I've had this secret that I've never told the other real nerds, but I used to be a volleyball <laughs> champion. And it's a weird secret desire that James might have. <laughs> Maybe we just need to like, offer free beer or something he's not an alcoholic corinne i don't know <laughs> i didn't say or, i said or something it could be other things too free money there you go we'll be like uh twenty dollars to anybody who shows up to play volleyball tell, tell him that steven spielberg is on the team as is matthew mcconaughey and no, as no, no. Is... ryan johnson oh yeah yeah tell him ryan johnson's running the league wink <laughs> We need to tweet at Ryan Johnson and tell him to get James <laughs> get James back into gear. You know what, Corinne? He'll answer that because he'll be like, because you you have to phrase it as such as, Mr. Ryan Johnson, will you please join our nerd volleyball league? And he's going to be like, well, this is the first time ever that that has been uttered to me. I guess yes. Ryan Johnson, if you happen to be listening, please join our non-existent volleyball league. <laughs> but it will you're, exist if you join it. <laughs> your, your, your cool wife that does that other um, Golden Age Hollywood podcast is more than welcome to join, too. You must remember this. You're from Denver. We're from Denver. It just makes sense. Yeah. Also, can you get Jordan, Jordan Gordon-Levitt on the team, too? I think we really need a power forward or whatever they do in volleyball. I mean, if it's a basketball get, position. <laughs> if he can just fill the team with Hollywood actors, why, like, why would we even play? Like, I it's all to get. Watch. He needs to get four of his friends, and then he's just like, we just really need James to complete this triumvirate. <laughs> and then the twist is, is that none of those guys show up, and it's just us on on game day. <laughs> We're starting to create our own version of Space Jam. So I mean, here. I'm down. Oh, okay. That's it. That's it. Well, I got volleyball it. instead of basketball. And, you know, James is going to have a team of Ryan Johnson, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, we'll have Paddington in there for Henry. Um, the corpse of Jack Benny for Zach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alfred Hitchcock's corpse is the coach. Uh, I'm not playing a goddamn game. What, a, what the fuck do you think I'm going to be doing around there? Wiggling around <laughs> Henry Golding's in there for Corinne. Thanks. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so who we get for Ryan? Are we going to get a Spider-Man? Robert Downey Jr. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't think of it. what's the kid's name. Shoot. And um, for for Brad, we'll get Emma Stone. Why not? Nice. Yeah. Um, there you go. I know what you like, buddy. I was going to say Sam Raimi. Ooh. I guess. Sam Raimi would be a good volleyball player. But also, so, like, I, I don't see Raimi or Downey Jr. playing. They're more like stand back and direct type guys. So they're coaches. They're coaches. Yeah, but who who would play for Ryan? That's the question. Mm. Like even Bruce Campbell would be like, I, I'm not gonna go out there and a- Emily I'm Blunt. Spider Man. Oh, yeah. Emily Blunt. Yeah, a, Emily Blunt. A, oh yeah, Emily Blunt. Yeah, that'd be a solid choice. I could dig that. Or, you're yeah. Tom Holland. 
And, yeah, and, I couldn't think of his name. And just yeah. tell J- and just tell James, look, we're doing all of this because if we don't beat the other nerd podcast at a basketball game or a volleyball game, then <laughs> then the Looney Tunes will become indentured servants. <laughs> I'm sure that'll perk his ears up. <laughs> In the original plan for season two of the Pod Show, uh, the final <clears throat> episode, we were supposed to play a baseball game together, and it it starts out. Uh, Ryan gets hit in the nuts with a baseball and passes mm-hmm. out and flashes back to a black and white uh, podcast episode uh, in the Wild West. <laughs> yep. Um, it was supposed to be the Dick Van Dyke homage. Yeah. But yeah, that's probably not going to happen now. So well, no, fun to think about. We, yeah. I mean, we've still got a, we've, we've got an even cooler idea going forward though. So I mean, perhaps we just have to recruit some friends of the podcast to help us. I mean, after listening to Brad on uh, Talking Trauma, I would love to get Zach Bynes on a volleyball team. You know? Yeah. Or what about Carol? I mean, Zach would have because he broke his leg, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. But he would be a, he would be our cheerleader, you know? Totally. He'd be totally down to do that. And, um, and yeah, no, uh, yeah, if we got Carol to do that, well, then James would have to out of fam- familial obligation. <laughs> that's just Carol's definitely bringing orange slices. <laughs> but this is a movie podcast, and I'm going to tell you what's going on around town. Thank you, Brad. I was just about to say the same thing. Hey, film buddies. Follow me around Denver. Yeah, all this hypothetical stuff is fun and all, but uh, the 88 Drive-In uh, has a triple feature of The Boss Baby 2, Fast 9, or F9, The Fast Saga, and A Quiet Place 2, showing July 2nd through the 8th. And then the Holiday Twin has two screens, and the first one has Boss Baby 2 and Peter Rabbit 2. And the second screen has F9 and Nobody. So check that out. Okay. Holiday Twin. HolidayTwin.com and 88DriveIn.net for up-to-date information in case this podcast does not drop in time. Right. Which it is quite often prone to do. Mm-hmm. And support your local drive-ins. Support your local indie houses. Support your local theaters, period. Yep. And that's what's showing the, this week. Uh, so that's what's mm-hmm. going to be on the show. And that's what's going on, on around town. Yep. Hey, Zach. Why don't you uh, tell us what the news is? It's real news. Well, in late breaking news, I've just learned of a volleyball match consistent of Steven Spielberg don't versus stop. George Lucas. Don't you dare. <laughs> I'm not dropping celebrity volleyball. <laughs> Stick to the script. Stick to the script. All right. Well, how's this for a script? Quentin Tarantino has been making the rounds, uh, promoting the novelization of his book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, He said lots of things, lots of things, lots of things. (laughs) But uh, one thing that uh, did strike the interest of us as theater goers is that he has bought the Vista Theater uh, on Sunset um, uh, in L.A. Um, And he's going to be opening it up around Christmas time only on film. Won't be a revival house. We'll show new movies that come out where they give us a film print. So if a new movie is willing to strike a film print, it's going to go to the, um, uh, it's going to be going to the Vista. So um, yeah, uh, 
the Vista had closed down at a certain point. So um, it's cool to see him bring that back and to actually make it a first run theater and not just a revival house. That's like a bad business model. Cause I mean, how many films produce film prints of their movies anymore? Like, well with, I think with, with the fact that the, the Vista closed down because of COVID and everybody trying to get people back into seats, this might be one more gimmick to convince people to come out of their houses. So, I mean, I like the idea a lot because it caters to somebody like me who does like watching a film print. I understand how it is feasibly a terrible business decision, but if Quentin Tarantino's, if that's what he wanted to spend his money on instead of making movies, then, you know, God bless him. Let him go do it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I agree though, that there's, there's a, there's a small likelihood that many of the big studios are going to strike film prints and the the movies that would want to show a film print, it seems like they wouldn't be able to afford the budget to strike a print um, uh, as part of their distribution plan. But <clears throat> I don't know what he has in store. So we've got plenty of friends that live in the LA area who might be able to report back for us and tell us what the Vista experience is like when it opens up around Christmas time. So look out for that. Um, and on that same front, Quentin Tarantino has also said that he's going to be making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a stage play. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm I'm kind of on board for this only because the plans for whatever Hateful Eight was supposed to be, I, I believe that was the case, is that that was supposed to be a play um, and that that didn't like pan out. And then it got turned into the movie and then he almost shelved the script because it got leaked, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, but he has written a play version, um, and he, uh, said he, uh, sat on it for about six or seven months and then he wanted to write a play and stuff that's not in his novelization. He wanted it to exist as just a play. And again, I'm able to explore stuff that's not in the movie. The play deals with Italy. And then he also wrote five episodes of Bounty Law. So it might actually be a play about Rick's time in, Italy making uh, spaghetti westerns, which would be very interesting. Um, so yeah, that's uh, all in Tar- Tarantino news. Um, unless you count the fact that he's written a partial novelization of Reservoir Dogs. So I guess he's just writing the novelizations to his movies now. I have no idea if this is what his new plan is, but you know, who am I to uh, who am I to judge him? Let him live his life. And um, let's see. Um, Here's a here's something for you guys that I found interesting because um, I'm assuming I'm not the only Seinfeld fan here in this room. Would I be correct? You know, I tried to watch it on Peacock, mm-hmm. and I know it's the first season, but man, I could not get through it. <laughs> yeah, you 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 got to power through that first season, just power right through it because the first season does have stuff that comes back later on. Um, but, um, I would give it a shot, especially since it's actually going to be coming to Netflix is what I was told, um, through that news about the pop tart movie that we couldn't get through because we had a debate about <laughs> pop tarts versus toaster strudels. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, the one thing that I loved about Seinfeld was the music. Um, and there was never really an official release of any of the music until now. Um, Water, Water Tower Music is set to release a 33-track soundtrack album tomorrow, 
on July July 2nd. So that is actually already happened. So it's already available for you guys. Sorry. Um, But it will be released on digital platforms as well. And this is a uh, all composed of the music Jonathan Wolf did for the show. Um, And he actually himself said he doesn't know why a soundtrack wasn't produced while the show was on the air. Um, So this is like kind of like a long last situation. The Seinfeld theme itself is very uh, memorable for TV fans in the nineties. So there's cues all over the place that would be pretty wonderful to listen to on their own. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, to and answer your question, Zach, I, I've maybe seen like two episodes of Seinfeld. I'm not like opposed to watching it. I'm just, Oh, uh, I didn't mean to know. cut you off. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whatever. Um, okay. but I mean, I like his stand up that I've listened to. You, you guys would, I think you guys would both like watching it. I, I would, I would caution you that I, it's been a while since I've sat down with it again, but I have to imagine that not all of it has entirely held up in terms of like, like it, 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 it's probably aged in a lot of respects. Um, but I, I do like Seinfeld and Larry David's sense of humor. So, um, it's, it's, it's something that's never going to leave my thoughts or my heart, but, um, it, it would be worth your time. I think, especially if you like his standup Corinne, then you'll dig at the very least watching Jerry's performance on the show. Um, the weirdest thing I saw was in the pilot episode, uh, they ha- hang out in the diner and there's a, uh, a waitress character. Uh, <laughs> she, she, she does come, she comes to nothing later on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually gets replaced with Elaine and then, uh, Kramer has a completely different name. He's Kessler. Yeah. Kessler is <laughs> Kessler. It's a tape. I taped the game. I avoided human contact all week to watch this. <laughs> uh, we'll never forget that pilot. Um, actually, the, the, the first conversation in the pilot comes to play by the very end in a very, I think, wonderful way. It's, it's, it's one of the best finales of television, hands down, because it's, it makes the most sense and anybody who says differently has no idea what they're talking about. Um, anywho, last piece of news literally came off the wire uh, today uh, at the age of 91, Richard Donner director of Superman, the Goonies, the Omen and the lethal Wep- lethal weapon series has passed away. Uh, Cause of death has not been revealed. Uh, Donner got his start uh, with TV credits in the 1960s, including Route 66, The Rifleman, Twilight Zone, The Man from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason, and The Wild Wild West. Um, his debut feature was X-15 with Charles Bronson and a very young Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, and then he went on to make the film Salt and Pepper with Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford. Uh, and his arguable big break uh, in terms of uh, wide exposure would have been 1976's The Omen, which then ends up leading two years later to him directing Superman, uh, the the movie that taught us that a man could fly. And then he would go on to dominate the 80s with the Lethal Weapon series and the Goonies and a variety of other projects. Um, he also directed Superman 2. But he's got that come out till later. There's a, there's a whole story behind that. And Lady Hawk. Which... Yeah, Lady Hawk, uh, Corinne's, Corinne's favorite movie, Lady Hawk. Um, I mean, it's not my favorite movie ever, but it is one of my favorites. You're right. Actually, yeah. I watched that oh, maybe like a month ago and oh, such a great movie. 
Yeah. Rest in peace, Richard Donner. Yeah. What, that what, is what, an underrated classic for sure. I think it was just like the, like the technology, like the story is really good and the performances are good. I think it's just like a little too cheesy sometimes. And like the soundtrack's okay. Some people hate it, but I don't mind it too much. Um, but then, yeah, the technology just wasn't quite ready for that story. Mm. So they did and, the best with what they had. Yeah. Well, you just said your favorite, Corinne. Like, let's roundtable this. Brad, do you have a Donner favorite? Um, gonna put me on the spot here. Maybe Superman two. Maybe Superman two. Okay, so you're going off of the. Are you going off of the Donner cut that they released not too long ago? Uh, I mean, it is a good cut, but I don't know. It's not that different. It's not that much different from the Richard Lester one. Okay, fair enough. Um, mine like well, I don't watch it anymore. But it used to be *Lethal Weapon*. <laughs> uh, it's hard for me to watch that movie these days. Um, but um, uh, it's still a masterfully directed movie. Um, I do like *The Omen* a lot as well. Um, but and then *Superman* one, I think. You know, like Brad, that uh, that opening in *Superman* one where they're reading the comic. I think that's like a, such a like it is super cheesy, but I really love given when it was made and how a superhero movie of that caliber movie of that caliber had not been made. It's actually kind of cool that he opens up the movie that way. <laughs> like it's 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 pretty damn charming. Um, and I remember watching it at the fitness cinema before the uh, uh, gyms closed during the pandemic, and it is still gorgeous looking. Um, but yeah, he, uh, is survived by his, uh, spouse, Laura Schooner Donner. And, um, if you ever want to listen to Richard Donner talk about his career a little bit, you should listen to, um, uh, Malton on movies did an interview with him not too long ago. That was really, really cool. Um, but yeah, 91 Richard Donner will be missed. I'm really surprised that, I mean, he was like in his eighties, but his last movie was 16 blocks. Yeah. Even he still the, produced his. He still produced a little bit, I believe, after um, sixteen blocks. Yeah, but he but... was always trying to get uh, Lethal Weapon five off the ground, which was never going to happen. So, oh, and he did Timeline. I forgot about that. He did Timeline. Yikes! Uh, he was guest producing Goonies two, probably in, in name only. Yeah, and. Uh, was a producer on the X-Men on the first X-Men and on X-Men origins Wolverine, uh, primarily with, uh, the Donner company, um, at the helm of that at the time. Uh, yeah, really surprising. Like his filmography is actually quite short. It's his television, um, career. That's actually more robust. It's just yeah. surprised me like how good he was at film that he only has a handful of films that I guess he did in his seventies. <laughs> Yeah, sixties seventies. Yeah, yep. And he also was a, a key part of uh, being an executive producer of the Tales from the Crypt series, and he directed three episodes of that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, uh, it's it's quite a life. Like really, like honestly, like and also keep in mind he's he was ninety one when he passed away today. This guy's been in the business since the sixties. So there's like shows that I le- mentioned in that uh, uh, at the top that like Tarantino who we were discussing in news directly references those things 
in things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and other films of his movies. So like this guy's been around. It's not like this is his first walk around the block. Um, it's I it's a, a, a big testament to Donner. I think is helming a movie like The Omen, where you have somebody like Gregory Peck giving just as good a performance as he would in other movies made before that, but having it be this you know pretty off the wall for its time horror film uh like that's something he was able to accomplish even though i guess ryan revealed in the making of that that they weren't sure that, that movie was gonna even gonna hit so um and then to be getting superman right after that like that seems insane <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i think his uh bigger contribution is you know making a superhero movie and treating it with like reverence and respect to where mm-hmm. um adults and children could enjoy it and yeah as dated as it as uh as dated as it may be today like it's still like the the heart of it is still really impressive so it's still the template that people want to hit at with some superhero movies like that's what wonder woman 1984 is essentially striving for and arguably regardless of what you what i even think of the movie like that movie does hit certain elements of the donner touch um and you know, and that that movie like is not as I don't feel like it's that dated in terms of like enjoyment. I mean, obviously it's dated in terms of effects and story development and the sincerity to the majority of its characters in a like immersive Marvel way, but god damn it, it is still fun to watch. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's news. That's news. Uh let's find out what's on DVD and Blu-ray. Oh. DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K this week. DVD releases and Blu-rays. Don't be so quick to dismiss DVDs. They're still a vital part of our ecosystem, keeping films alive. Because some companies don't want to put out Blu-rays of them. I mean, factually, they are still the highest-selling home media product. Yep, uh, they still outsell Blu-ray and 4K. But I mean. If you're a cinephile and you're watching DVDs, I have some questions for you. Um, my answer is because Warner Brothers won't upgrade them to Blu-ray, so I still have to buy their archive DVDs. <laughs> you're a sucker because someday they will, and then you'll just be buying it again. Or I'll just have multiple copies for when all the media fails us, and then who's going to be laughing now? Anywho. <laughs> um, it's actually kind of a packed week. Um, first off, we're getting the 4K of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, um, which I believe this is the new remastered based off of what uh, Mr. Edgar Wright did for the Dolby Atmos. Am I correct with that, Brad? Yeah, whatever was screening in theaters about a month ago, it's on 4K now. Okay, wonderful. But that's not the only 4K you can get from Universal. Are you excited as I am for seeing Howard the Duck getting a 4K release? <laughs> I mean, I never thought that would ever happen because just getting a DVD of it was so hard for the longest time. Brad, um, Brad, I I can't get I can't get half the movies I want on Blu-ray. I can't get Suburban Commando. I can't get Super Mario Brothers. But we're already up to four. Like those movies aren't even on Blu-ray. <laughs> All and, through the night, directed by the legendary Vincent Sherman, which features Humphrey Bogart and Jackie Gleason beating up Nazis, can't get a Blu-ray release. But Howard the Duck has a 4k release i mean kudos to howard the duck for making a huge comeback in the public conscious 
I guess because I mean, it's a Marvel movie. I guess that's Universal's just like let's just let's just milk these nerds for whatever they've got. <laughs> We've got the Hulk and Howard the Duck. So, and um, if we have our way, Dominic Toretto. <laughs> We'll get him into the MCU. You watch. Um, but that's not the only wackadoo uh, cartoon movie that's coming to your, or cartoon-esque movie. You can also get Space Jam in 4K, um, which actually I might pick up because I don't have a physical copy of Space Jam anymore. And um, I would like to see if Warner Brothers did anything to make that look okay. <laughs> um Paramount Classics, uh, the Paramount line of uh, re-releasing some of their older catalog titles, is putting out 48 Hours and another 48 Hours. Okay. Uh, Is another 48 Hours a Paramount Classic, or is it just they wanted to release both of them together? I I question this label. (laughs) And that's what they usually do to sell a not-as-beloved sequel, package it with the first one. Yeah. Well, it's their separate releases. That's the thing, Brad. This is what has me questioning everything. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's on the shelf. You're like, oh, there's a 48 hours too. Might as well get both while I'm here. <laughs> That's when I want to come out from behind the corner and go, don't. <laughs> and I'll pay 20 bucks for each one separately because they're not packaged together. You fool. You stupid fool. <laughs> Damn you, Paramount. First you ruined the picture quality on To Catch a Thief and now this. Uh Yes, um, but also Sony's going to bring its 4K game to the table and you can pick up Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb uh, from 1964 featuring Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. It's one of the greatest comedies ever made. You should pick it up. Or if you really don't care about it being in 4K or Blu-ray, you can pick up the Criterion version that's around. Hey, speaking of Criterion's... Hey, 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 slow (laughs) down, okay? People have questions. You have questions about Dr. Strangelove? No. I have a question. Uh, Criterion, you know, they are the the standard on for film preservation and presentation. How come, like, do they have plans for 4K or are they just going to release Blu-rays of everything until the end of time? I don't know. I mean, Shout and Scream have already been getting into the 4K game. I wonder if Criterion's kind of moving more towards streaming because the Criterion channel is pretty effective at what it's doing. I mean, they've got Dr. Strangelove, but uh, Sony here is already getting ahead of them by raising their 4K version. Now, aside from uh, special features, it makes the Criterion kind of have an egg on their face. Does it, though? Because, like, I guess it would depend on how well the Sony transfer turned out. Like, I guess I would have to pick up that version um, and compare it. But... I mean, you know, like that, but that, that's the question too. Like, do you buy Parasite in 4K when it came out first from Neon, or do you wait and get that Criterion? That's what I'm, I'm very confused with because Criterion markets themselves as being, you know, the, the best version of these films from their creators. Um, so it's weird that they're really slacking on the 4K stuff because, like you said, Parasite even though they got their rights a little late still, like there's no plans for a 4k from criterion, but you, you get the 4k from the original studio. So it's just weird that they're not doing it at all. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I kind of wish that criterion would bite into that bullet, but 
I wonder if they take into consideration that not everybody who purchases their product may have the money for a 4K player or a 4K TV because I really there's a like- there, there's a huge I I I'm fairly sure there's still a huge market of film school uh, film school kids who are buying their product on mass because they hear about Criterion label before they even learn the name Scorsese so they're gonna still buy that stuff or more than likely again they're going towards the criterion channel which you know shout and scream they have a streaming channel but they know that their bread and butter a lot of their bread and butter comes from their physical releases because that's where they've made their mark whereas criterion channel doesn't just have the criterion titles it also has stuff that they have a marker on in the market they have mitch lyson movies that don't even have a physical release in this country period so I mean, maybe that's their angle. They're just moving towards the future. Uh, streaming aside, I'm just saying, like, if you're making physical copies of something, like, no casual film school student is buying Criterions. So the people who are are buying Criterions are, you know, buying them because they love those movies and they want the best version of it. So... Hmm. I mean, again, I'm not disagreeing with you, and I wish I had an answer for you. I really do. I'm, I'm just surprised. I, I, I wish Criterion would say something. I haven't heard anything. Well, let it, let me I, see if I can get Charlie Criterion on the phone, and he can answer your questions. Like I know they're still really behind on converting their DVD titles. So yeah, they've had they've had uh, Spellbound in the works apparently for 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 a few years now, and they need to get that shit out sooner rather than later please um what else is coming out yeah can i tell you about the criterions that are coming out though i mean you're going to yeah i'm going to um yeah you can first get a movie called mirror from 1975 um but more prevalent to this podcast is you can pick up bringing up baby from 1938 the howard hawks comedy classic featuring Catherine hepburn and some guy that ryan's obsessed with whatever um but uh yes no cary grant and uh, this is a restoration of the film that has been long overdue. Up until this point, the movie has only been available on uh, the two disc DVDs that came out in 2003 and on HBO Max in an inferior print that pissed me and Ryan off the moment HBO Max launched. So thank you, Criterion, for stepping up and actually delivering a good version of this movie. I'm excited to pick this up tomorrow. Um and uh, MVD is putting out uh, two films, Mortuary from 1983, and they are putting out The House on Sorority Row from 1983. So if you want a nice little horror double pack, there you go. That's your game there. Um, we have also got Icy Breasts uh, from Kino Lorber coming out. I have no idea. what well, it's, it's, it's with Elaine Delon. And Mariel Dark. I have no. I I want to know what what is icy breasts. Um, and yeah, uh, we've also got the Black Marble from 1980 coming from them. The Road to Selena, the Widow Kudrick, um, and looks like that's about it from the Kino Lorber front. Um, and. Looks like that's about it, guys. There is a Steelbook of Mortal Engines in 4K if you were wanting that. Cool. Uh, I guess that uh, brings us to what we've been watching. So, uh, yeah, this is the stuff we've been watching. Corinne, what have you been watching? 
Oh, a lot, but I'm just going to hit some highlights here. <sighs> All right. So do y'all want me to talk about the season eight finale of the blacklist or no? I mean, uh, I, I mean, our, our biggest detractor is not here. So I'm totally game to listen to the nonsense. <laughs> I still want to be surprised. Okay. Brad, cover your ears. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll uh, I'll just skirt around some spoilers then, but let's just say I was extremely disappointed with something that they're hinting at, but they haven't technically confirmed, but they're definitely hinting at it very strongly as to Red's true identity. And then they made another character choice that I was just like, furious about and I straight up the finale was I think it was like two Wednesdays ago and then like I I turned my tv on and I like watched it live and everything and then when it was over I like shut my tv off and I didn't turn it on for like a full week after that it was I mean (laughs) it was that upsetting that you had to shut off all of the tv not even any of the anime you watch or the bbc programming you watch you had to shut off everything i think i was just mainly watching like youtube videos and i was out of town for part of that but okay so yeah see, i was is, still i was just like i'm not watching any netflix i'm not watching anything like frick you know screw this this is this is why you don't watch inferior network television anymore because then it convulses you to not watch anything period and that in itself is the dilemma that you must avoid um i, I let me ask you this is there a reveal that it turns out that James Spader is actually Robert Downey Jr. and he just takes off a mask in the last episode and it's been Robert Downey Jr. this whole time. Yep, that's exactly what happened. How did you oh my guess? God. I, you know, you know, I did call it a hunch, but I think that this show has thrown enough silly curveballs your way and Brad's way that I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and say that's the answer. <laughs> I am so... Like, okay, you, I know. y'all know... Like, I can't get into spoilers. I hope Brad gets to watch it someday so we can talk about it. But... Y'all remember how upset I was when Ben Solo died in the in the Rise of Skywalker? Well, yeah, take yeah. that times like a thousand, and that's how pissed off I was about the season eight finale. So the blacklist is for TV fans. What Star Wars: The New Trilogy has been for a lot of sad people on the internet. Yep, I guess okay. so. Okay, gotcha. All right, I'll move on to better things. Um, well, that being said, <laughs> I still want to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Do not. Do I not. I could give to. you a list of about a hundred other shows that are way more worth your time. But but you you guys have kind of brainwashed me at this point to the no. point where I'm just like, no, I have to try it now. I will physically restrain you. I will kidnap you. I will steal your televisions. I will throw your cable box in a lake if I have to. <laughs> I don't have okay, a your cable router. box. <laughs> Whatever. I'll throw your router into a lake if I have to, Zach. Corinne, You're not Corinne, watching the show. Corinne, I want, you to, I want you to understand. It is not 1995 to 2005. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I will make it so that you cannot watch it. Corinne, the, the, year is 20, the year is 2021. Is it, though? Is it? I, I mean, sometimes I wonder myself. Sometimes I feel like I'm mentally still in 2019. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make a prediction. Wrestler died, didn't he? Uh, not going to tell you what happened. Oh, yeah. I nailed it. I didn't even watch the show, and I know what happened. 
Does it does it turn out, Corinne, that the that the blacklist is actually a secret a secret David Letterman top ten list that we never got to see? That would have been a much better show. <laughs> Every episode is just forty minutes of of David Letterman's top ten. But he's in a jail cell. Anyway, let's move on to better things here. So I watched Luca. Um, I don't know if you guys talked about it last week. I haven't listened to that episode yet. But I mean, I thought it was okay. It wasn't anything to write home about, especially after Soul. I think this has been one of Pixar's lesser outings, but it's not necessarily a bad movie. I just think that, you know, it just didn't have a higher ceiling on purpose. Like, the subject matter wasn't especially, like, tear-jerking or ethereal or whatever. It was just more of, like, like it kind of had the same vibe of, like, a Studio Ghibli film. Where everybody's just kind of, like, hanging out and the conflict is, like, really small scale and, you know, whatever. It's nothing crazy. So it didn't give you an existential crisis? No, thankfully okay. it didn't. <laughs> was it be- I'm, I'm assuming it's beautiful looking. I, I want to see it. It was on I mean, Disney not Plus. Especially, so. I mean, sure. There's like the animation's not bad. It's just I feel like it looks more cartoony. It almost looks like like a studio Pixar version of one of those like cloudy with a chance of meatball or um, what's the one that does like the stop motion? What's that? What's that studio? Micah. Yeah, like a, it, it feels a lot in that vein. That's cool, though. <laughs> so, again, it wasn't like bad, but it was just, yeah. I probably won't revisit it anytime soon. I'm not like dying to see it again. Fair enough. And another movie I'm not dying to see again. I went and saw F9, and it was. Hold on. Let's get into this. Um. <laughs> So I have seen of the Fast and Furious series, I've seen two, most of three, six, and now nine. And that's it. I haven't seen any of the others. Is is it entirely possible, Corinne, that we're just crazy? Because I've only seen one, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I've missed three, I guess. But like, but like, but when I started getting into like pr- trying to catch up with this series, I had only seen like one, three, four, five. <laughs> wow! Like, do yeah. we just like all pick the entry? Like, like, does what entry you choose to start the Fast and Furious franchise like that says something about you and your personality? <laughs> I have no idea, but I mean, I guess it. <sighs> It's almost like the longer the movie went on, the stupider it was. Because the first, I don't know, maybe third or so, like, yeah, it's, like, ridiculous and they're defying the laws of gravity and all this bullshit. But I think, like, all the flashback sequences with um, Dom and his dad and his brother, um, basically, like, all the younger actors did a great job. And I felt like... That story was really emotionally poignant. I mean, as much as you can get in a Fast and Furious movie. And I was like, okay, like, I'm on board with this whole, you know, brotherly rivalry. Well, not even rivalry. It's like brotherly war and how Dom thinks that his brother was responsible for his dad's death. And 
I guess like the resolution to that whole thing where Jacob just yells at him like God was in debt. He lost the race on purpose or he was trying to throw the race and then he died. And then he just like walks away. And I was like, that's it. That's all the emotional resolution we're going to get. And I know he like has the near death experience, (sighs) which you could seriously play a drinking game and take a shot every time (laughs) he almost, he either almost dies or should die. And you would be, you would also be dead. So it's just like, it's all to set up that only I can live. (laughs) Although it is, I was glad to see them bring Han back. I was also glad to see them tie in the um, Tokyo drift characters. Cause they've always kind of been off and doing their own corner. Um, so yeah, it was like, yeah, at the very end when everything kind of came together, I was like, it's so nice to see all these like branches of the Fast and Furious family coming together for their thing. And they even reference how Brian is still alive in universe. Um, so you like, appro- yes. so do you approve of this idea? <laughs> that he- what, what idea? The, that he's still alive because like oh, sure. I, cause the, driving up to the end, I'm just like, how many times are they going to allude to a car? pulling up that's brian like it just seems like they're dragging that thread a little too long but i mean what are what else are they supposed to do like they needed i guess it made sense like they had to have mia in the movie because you know jacob is her brother too and i actually liked how they you know gave her a little bit of backstory where she's like yeah i kept in touch with jacob after it all happened and yeah because i wondered about that i was like well he's her brother too so why couldn't they stay in touch even if dom hated him but it's it's more just like like for me like like utilizing the brian character as it stands now in this posthumous way like i like the fact i like the way they ended it in seven because it was like a very nice and touching way to end that where you didn't need to necessarily bring it back and i do like that they brought jordana brewster back but it it, but it was just kind of one of those things like i walked out going like how like it just seems like you keep reminding us of this a little too often i don't know if we need to be reminded of it all the time but um but you know i mean regardless i'm glad you enjoyed it uh, for for what it's worth did you like them going into space (laughs) you know the minute they said something about satellites i was like oh my gosh are we really going into space because i remember that fast and fury or the one of the directors said something about like the next movie we could be going to space Mm -hmm. and then they they did and i was like "Ah." You know, as stupid as it was, it was really entertaining. And it was also really nice that at least all the trailers I saw did not spoil that. So I was like, yeah, they they, could have very easily spoiled that in the trailers, but they didn't. So that was all the more rewarding. They didn't spoil it, but they did show them in the sky with a rocket car. That's all they showed you. They didn't show you whether or not they'd succeed. (laughs) Well, I guess I either I missed it or I forgot about it. Yeah, but this... uh... I, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, you know what? Props to them for finally getting to space. <laughs> I mean, them getting down from space was ridiculous. Like when they just stroll up to the ISS and I'm like, pretty sure that's not how it works. <laughs> but but they've established in this universe that apparently law enforcement agencies are a joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. <coughs> and they were very tongue in cheek about how they, they are invincible. Like just yeah. that fourth wall break. I'm like, who is writing this? 
It's the same guys who've been writing the whole series, I believe. Like they've still been. I think Justin Lin was a co-writer, the director. Let me look at that. I'm actually curious. <laughs> I want to say that that's right. I don't know. I could be wrong. But also, anyway, I don't yeah. plan on watching it again. But it was a movie that I saw. Oh yeah, it's uh, Daniel Casey, uh, Alfredo Botello, and Justin Lin. Yeah, Justin Lin was a writer on him. I'll be damned. Okay, um, so I've got something else to talk about, but do we want to get into Loki now, or should we wait? That's uh, part of my, what I've been watching, so... Okay, I'll talk about my other show first, then. So, I was telling y'all, I've been, been watching a show about volleyball, and guess what? It's an anime, <laughs> because y'all know how I roll. I think it was, like, Thursday or Friday, I was just like, I'm in, like, some kind of weird mood, I just need like some lighthearted anime to just give me like a pick me up and, you know, get me all fired up and everything. Nothing too, too violent or too downer, just something that's, you know, lighthearted and fun. And I had seen, it's called Haikyuu. Um, it's on Netflix, or at least the first two seasons are. And I'd seen it on there. I think my sisters had talked about it and I was like, Oh, I'll get around to it one day. Well, this weekend, I finally did. And oh my gosh, it was so good. I watched the first season in like 36 hours. <laughs> I just could not pull myself away. Um, it's about these guys who are coming into high school and they're both, I mean, individually, like they're, they've got a lot of potential and some amount of skill, depending on who you're talking about. But they, um, they just kind of form this, unique um combo because of like their skill sets and then like their new high school team just kind of uh uses that as a foundation to build up this program that's kind of been down in the dumps like they used to be really good and then they kind of fell short for several seasons and so now they're trying to build it back up and they're trying to go to nationals and all this stuff and it's really really good like there isn't a character on there that I don't like. Like, maybe there are some who get on my nerves occasionally, but everybody's likable. The comic writing is fun. I've been watching it in the English dub, and I think I've said before on here that, in general, watching English dubbed anime is, if it's a comedy, I think the jokes translate better because you're not having to read them. <laughs> you're just hearing it. So, like, the comic timing on some of these jokes is just, perfect and actually and, that actually sounds like it would make a lot of sense i didn't never thought of it that way before mm-hmm. like does it just does it does it translate well in terms of what the intent of the joke is or i mean as far as i as far as i know have you done a comparison where you've watched like the the subtitle version versus the dub version i mean maybe in like one or two scenes but okay I mean, like I said, I'm usually watching the dub version first. So even if I watched the original Japanese audio with the subtitles, I would still already know what the joke was. Mm-hmm. Or oh, okay, at least like in fair. general, I would know. I just meant like, cause I just, just I, I wondered if um, Japanese, like if, if like there might be moments of humor that translate different into English or if things are fudged around and changed. So. Oh, I'm sure that they there was one bit i remember where they said um like well the cojones on this kid and i was like cojones <laughs> like a, that's just a word you never expect to hear in an anime of all things um but it was just 
Yeah. And I was like, but that fits, you know, with the context and with like everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really great show. Like you get really sucked into like the characters and you'd love to see them grow, not only as players, but also as people see them build up their teamwork and their rapport and their individual skills. And then you also get this like wider cast of characters where, you know, their opponents become their allies. It's a very Japanese trope um, where, you know, you fight certain people and then they become your allies later on. Um, Dragon Ball Z is a very big example of that. Oh yeah. Even the first Dragon Ball. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Um, But yeah, it's just like, it's so nice to see how they're not like, yeah, they're competitive, but they also know like, you know, when we're just at training camp or, when we're just like hanging out, like we can be kind of chill and we can give each other pointers and we can help each other get better. And it's not all about like, Oh, I want to crush you. It's also a little bit of like, Hey, let me give you some helpful advice and like see you develop as a player so that we can have better opponents. So it's just a lot of fun and you just get to love everybody. So I highly recommend it. Haikyuu. It's on Netflix, at least the first two seasons. I think there are two more that um, I think they were working on the English dub of season three, but I'm not sure where that's at right now. So I might have to like find it. I'm almost to the end of season two and they are, ooh, I don't want to give spoilers, but they're going up against a, a team that they lost to previously. So it's like, ooh, revenge against the rival team. <laughs> so anyway, um, and then I finally got caught up on Loki. Um, Last weekend, I was hanging out with my family and my stepbrother um, started watching. He's like, hey, do you mind if we watch this? And I was like, sure. I haven't seen it yet. I was going to wait till all the episodes were out and then I would get, you know, just watch all of them at once. Well, he had already seen the first episode. So then he just turns on episode two and I'm like, oh, wait, okay, (laughs) like, I really had to pay attention to, like, the previously on, and I'm, like, just trying to, like, figure out what's going on the whole time, and then I can't can't remember if we watched, I think we did watch season, or episode three, um, right afterward, so I think I watched two, three, then I went back and I watched one, and then four and five, I don't know, but anyway, it was a, (laughs) it was a lot of, um, are we already on five? Weirdness, I think. Or no, wait, I guess it was four. Yeah, I was going to say. Know, whatever. Need to watch five. <laughs> They're all kind of blending together for me. But it's okay. I, I mean, I do like Tom Hiddleston as Loki, but I think he's one of those characters who does better when he... He's like Jack Sparrow, right? Like, he's a character who is so, like, chaotically fun that he kind of needs to be with like some more stable people who are kind of vanilla in their own way. But, you know, like he's like that spice. So if you focus on him, it just feels a little off. And then it's like, you've got even more Lokis running around and it's like, now we're just focusing on all this chaos. And also there's like some plot going on with the timekeepers or whatever. I guess I'm just not super invested. I'll watch the rest of the episodes, but it's not been like a real, I don't know, cliffhanger sort of show for me. I'm not like dying to see the next episode. I don't know. What about you, Brad? 
Yeah, that's going to lead into me. Uh, I'm the opposite. I am totally, especially after this week's episode, I am so just feverishly desiring the next episode because so I desperately need five to, you know, there's only six episodes. So it's the penultimate one. Um, There's no, not much story left to tell. So I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to know what's the repercussions of what just happened and episode four because it defied a lot of the rules that we've been presented with so you know something that occurred to me today was how okay so there's like the what is it called the sacred timeline where apparently like the avengers go back in time so i guess i'm like how does that work exactly so does that mean that within the sacred timeline you have both the avengers go back to like 2012 new york like there are two sets of Avengers there at that time. And you also have like everything that happens with, you know, Thanos and whatever, five years after the snap. And, but then you also have Captain America going back in time. I'm so confused. Well, because shouldn't there be two versions of Peggy Carter? The one where she was with Steve and the one where she was not with Steve. Cause he was on ice. Well, the, the I'm trying not to spoil everything for the listeners, but like I think the repercussions of episode four make me feel like all this ver- the the rules of the variance are bullshit. Like they don't mean anything, and they're trying to set up the multiverse in a way that I think in the end isn't going to have any kind of logic to it. They're just trying to get the audience comfortable with there being multiple versions of people without actually defining the science of it. So. I mean, that's fine by me. They're just going to have to figure this out or at least tell me what's going on. Because, you know, before episode, what are we on, five? (laughs) Unless five and six or something explain, you know, as you said, that there are multiple timelines coexisting at once. None of the events of Avengers Endgame make any sense. Well, I think they've established that there are multiple timelines. Uh, obviously the multiverse exists because of Spider-Man, but I think that as much as an audience, we want to know exactly how that works. I think they're just going to fudge it and just let us go. Like it's like the infinity stones. It just exists. It's just a thing. Get used to it. So whereas the first episode set up like, Hey, there is a bunch of rules to this multiverse stuff. And I feel like that was just a red herring to like lull it lure us in so i mean it makes sense that if they set up like oh hey there's only the one timeline then by the end they'll say you know because loki will figure out whatever's going on with the timekeepers or some blue blah ha, ha, and they'll undo all the damage that's been done somehow and then multiple timelines will exist simultaneously and the multiverse will be restored so you get this last two episodes to kind of set the record straight because I'm, I'm insanely curious about why you would set all that up and then make it a red herring. So, uh, cool. You were done, right? Yep. Um, I guess I'll wrap up. Uh, I watched. Uh, um, oh, hi. Fine. I'm piggybacking off of the. Did you watch Loki? No, I didn't watch Loki. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I didn't watch Loki. Never mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. What's the podcast? Um, 
I spooled uh, a reviewed Aliens right after watching Alien. And I thought, man, I've only seen Aliens once. I should watch it again. Um, I remember feeling it was okay. It's an action movie. It's, you know, in the time since it's been out, plenty of movies have copied its formula. Uh, so having not seen it when it came out, obviously it just doesn't feel original or fresh to me. So I watched it again and I actually enjoyed it less this time around. Um, really? <laughs> it took so long to just get to the point of it. And then when it did, I just, a lot of it just looked the same. Um, and the dialogue was just kind of tough to handle. It, you know, it was just so simplistic or uh, like as an action movie, it's cool, but like everything else, like I'd rather just watch alien and watch a monster movie. So uh, yeah, that was like, wow. I, I, I'm surprised I didn't enjoy this more and actually enjoyed it less than when I first watched it. For, uh, I think like 10 years ago or something. Uh, then I uh, started flipping around and being like, I really need to start watching some of these Blu-rays that uh, have been sitting here and have not got around to. So uh, I think for the first time in like 10 years, I watched Super, um, which is still a lot of fun. Um, if you don't know, it's 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 James Gunn's kind of like the same time kick-ass came out you know there's like this realistic superhero thing going on uh so his is like the really dark and twisted version of that like not fun like kick-ass um rain wilson plays kind of a loser guy um his wife Liv tyler is a recovering drug addict who gets um kevin bacon is a drug dealer who kind of cooks her coaxes her back into you know uh, his world and then rain wilson flips out and dedicates himself to getting her back and part of doing this is becoming a vigilante um who beats people with a wrench mm -hmm. and then uh along the way he uh has to learn about superheroes so he goes to the comic book store and he meets elliot page uh who teaches him about superheroes and like how to be one based on the comics and then Bolty is okay with killing people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, whereas Crimson Bolt has a moral code. And uh, anyway, it's just dark and messed up and brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. And also just like a, a brilliant look at just how, if someone actually went about doing that, um, how it, it kind of, more it likely kind of turn out. Do you remember, Brad, when there was like a slew of costume vigilantes becoming viral sensations in that kick-ass vein, like in actual life? Yeah, like, uh, what's his name? Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix Jones. Phoenix Jones, yeah. Yeah, that, that like that, when, when Bueno and I went to go see Super, like my recollection, like in, in the middle of it, was this idea of like it, it deconstructing vigilantism like on the on the traditional front but now especially like i haven't seen it in a while but i imagine if i went back into it i would get this darker picture of what vigilantism has become in today's society <laughs> and like <laughs> and and find it to be an even darker portrait <laughs> but 
Um, yeah, and he, he, oh, like God, he, it is good. He's also like his. He's tied. His moral code is tied to a uh, Nathan Fillion plays. Uh, what's he called? It's his like inspir. It's not like Jesus. God damn it! What it's, is it? It's whole. It's the, like the Holy Crusader or something. But yeah, he you know drives everything from the teachings of Jesus and. Uh, James Gunn actually plays the devil in the uh, the, the Holy Nick Avenger. Kelvin, the Holy Avenger, yeah, yeah. Um, should like, you think it'd be easier to remember? But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Michael Rooker's in it. Um, who else? Sean's in it. Sean Gunn's in it. Um, yeah, Stephen Blackheart. Yeah, some of that. But anyway, yeah, it's it's highly entertaining. And then uh, I listened to the commentary on it it was cool to like hear him and rain wilson talk about it um the making of and then i rewatched also kind of like on the same shelf uh was rubber which i had the blu-ray of hadn't opened it <laughs> <laughs> both these movies came out in 2010 so I'm like man i need to rewatch rubber then wait and- is rubber the one that's like the horror about like a runaway tire that kills people it's a killer tire not a runaway tire it's a killer tire yeah i i put the disc in i was like you know what i actually don't remember a lot of the details of this movie and you're right it is a sentient tire that mm-hmm. just comes to life <laughs> and it's I like thought there... christine but only the one part of the car <laughs> yeah it's as if christine was like bored that day but its left tire decided to go on a spree <laughs> i thought i remember there being more to it but it really is this tire rolls around and just gets angry and makes makes people's head explode. I say angry, like he has no facial expressions. So I just assume it's assume his vibrations and making people's head explode is because he's angry at something. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a weird movie because in addition to that, there's a narrator who appears on screen as a police officer. And the first, his opening monologue is talking about how a lot of movies, if you really think about them, don't make sense. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why you should be okay with this movie. Um, I forget what some of the premises are as examples, but a lot of them are just kind of like really conveniently made up to make sense like that um but yeah and then he's talking to, it reveals he's talking to a crowd of people in the desert who are watching the tire in real time like they're present roped off by velvet ropes and they're watching the movie that's existing a hundred yards away from them um and then, yeah, from then on, the rest of the movie is just trying to track down the tire and, and kill it so it stops murdering people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, super weird, but also I admire how bizarre it is. And um, it's a tribute to, yeah, movies don't have to always be so logical. Uh, it's really for the sake of making, taking your imagination and just putting it out there. In principle, film is supposed to be where your imagination literally comes to life, and uh, Dupuis took that to pra- t- took that to heart. Yeah, it's like really, you know, why we have the ability to make whatever we want in film. Yeah, 
you can create any world you want. So why limit yourself to making realistic things? So hence, hence many, hence many logic arguments when you talk about film are useless when you have a movie like rubber out there to prove that it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's that. And the last thing I watched, um, oh, shoot, there's something I watched. The Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the last thing I watched for uh, the 4th of July was uh, Air Force One was playing at the Alamo Draft House. Ooh, good movie. Yeah. yeah. And get off my plane. It's already a good movie. It's an even better movie in the theater because I don't like Jerry Goldsmith's score for that movie. Like, I don't remember it that well. So when I watched it, like, not only is it a good score, but it's also, this movie came out in 97. And in 96, he did the score for first Con- Star Trek First Contact. And if you take away the patriotic marches in it, it almost sounds like the score for First Contact. And I watched the commentary track when I got home. So I re- I watched Air Force One twice. When I got home, I watched it with the commentary track, which... The commentary on the Blu-ray, I guess DVDs had just became a thing in like 97, 98. So Air Force One DVD was one of the first DVDs that came out. And on the track, they're talking about how they're doing this new thing called DVD commentaries. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a commentary from 97, like maybe six to eight months after the movie had just premiered in theaters. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing commentary track uh, with Wolfgang Peterson because he actually talks about how to make a film. Ooh, that's gotta be cool. He talks about the like most mundane things in the most enthusiastic way possible. And like, as a filmmaker, it's just, it's just gold. Like he's telling you like what shots are real and which shots are like CGI. Um, And um, he talks about the process of hiring background extras and like which locations, like a lot of the Kazakhstan locations are actually Ohio and um you know pretty much anything in the sky is not on film because you can't shoot at night above the clouds because it's all black Mm -hmm. so a lot of it's matte paintings and model work and cgi and i always thought the only cgi really was the plane at the end but a lot of the fighter jets uh the plane when it first gets hijacked and like blows through the runway um, and tears through those trees next to the traffic control tower. Like that's CGI. Um, yeah, does, it's uh, does he say if the, any of the mat, the mat backdrops for the sky are digital or if they are uh, physically constructed? Uh, the clouds are, I think, cause a lot of the cloud ones are like someone went out and shot like second, unit went out and shot, like right before it got dark. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just blue. But the most fascinating matte painting is the Russian airport. Ooh. Does that get, it extends out? That's right. They're at LAX, but they found a part of LAX where the background is just nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole structure that you see in the movie is painted in. <laughs> the airport, this huge sprawl, like you see the whole tarmac with Air Force One on it and the supposedly Russian structure behind it is just a matte painting. I was just like, that's mind fucking, blown. That's incredible. And then I, mat- yeah. Yeah. And so the second time I watched, I, um, like I rewound it a bit and you could see it jitter a little bit. I was like, holy shit. Like, how did I not 
Like I just watched it huge a couple hours ago and I didn't see that jitter. And it's just like, yeah, incredible. And then like, um, he got to take a tour, like, uh, Bill Clinton invited them to, you know, study air force one when they made the movie. Um, and they got a pretty, like, despite security measures, they got a pretty, um, detailed look at the actual plane and everything. Um, but the plane is actually a lot smaller in real life, which made it problematic to shoot, you know, stage these dramatic scenes in. So they took license and actually expanded like the, uh, that top command center communication center. Um, they widened it. So like the real one is actually very narrow, like a submarine. Um, and then the bottom, the middle deck is actually sectioned off. So you can't see through it. Huh. They're all different rooms. So in the movie, um, he wanted to be able to, you, you can see like from one end to the other. And that's why there's a, that whole side of it um, is completely open. Um, so I, I need to, I need to put that in the fugitive on back to back for some Ford. But now that you're telling me there's map paintings in here, I want to take a look at 90s. Like I just want to bask in that a little bit. Yeah. It's yeah. If, if you're a film nerd and you, you want to hear a director talk about making movies and he just got off of in the line of fire. So he's, to make some reference to that. <laughs> Kevin Costner was supposed to play uh, Harrison Ford's role, um, but he was too busy to do it. So he said, hey, you should get Harrison Ford to do this. Um, Best choice ever. Yeah. Costner's um, good, but Ford is Ford. Yeah. Um, what else? And yeah, just the movie itself is great. Um, so anyway, Air Force One, awesome movie. Goldsmith score, tremendous. Uh Action's incredible. Are they doing more screenings or was that the only one? I think it was the only one because it was, you know, kind of 4th of July tangential. So, uh, but yeah, even better at home on like, if you're, if you're film making geek, the, I'm surprised I hadn't listened to it before, but that commentary is gold. Like, yeah, it's amazing. So Zach, what'd you watch? Oh, um, I, continued my futurama um cycle i'm now into production season four which is volume four which is commingled with seasons three and four because again fox fucked it up um but uh yeah this still wonderful storytelling and beautiful animation strewn about i got to the episode with leela's um leela finding out that her that she's a mutant and who her parents are and by the time it gets to the end and I, I still love the bit where they're uh, they they put the note through Professor Farnsworth's no, glow in the dark nose making machine, and uh, he um, he Fry goes. I had the professor analyze the note that was left on you when you were a baby. What did it say? I don't know. <laughs> but the but the machine said it was uh, made of a squishy, soft, uh, soft, terrible t- tissue paper found mainly in the sewers. <laughs> That's the extent of what Farnsworth's technology could do. And that's a, in that same episode, you also have uh, um, the machine that the f- professor makes is creating a bunch of toxic, toxic waste byproduct. And uh, uh, he he gets defensive and he uh, and he's around Hermes and he goes like, all right. So the machine produces a little bit of toxic waste. You don't have to make a federal case out of it. And Hermes goes, I'm afraid I do. And he holds out his bureaucratic patch. <laughs> <laughs> just like a nice little subtle joke there um 
but yeah, so I'm I'm getting excited to go back to the movies because I still maintain that if you were going to talk about the last 20 to 30 years of animation, Bender's big big score has some of the best uh, moments in an animated movie from the perspective of emotional storytelling. Um, but more on that next week, hopefully. Um, from the movie perspective, I didn't watch too much. Um, I rewatched Notorious with the Film Club, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. It was really cool watching other people interact with that movie and um, those who hadn't seen it for the first time. And then also just geeking out at certain moments, like the moment, like the, like the final shot of notorious is hands down. One of the most tense and most wonderful um, callbacks in a Hitchcock movie because of just what it means for a character in the movie when he's simply told to come inside. Like it is just, it's just so beautiful. Um, and it, it is, um, as Ryan's pointed to with Cary Grant's performance, it's a Cary Grant's asked to be very much a, 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 a indelibly terrible person <laughs> who has to learn to be better by the end of the movie and combining that with his natural charm and charisma and you wanting to like him. Um, and the idea that it's set up for, as most Cary Grant movies are for, the woman to desire Cary Grant that it's amazing that the character pulls it off so well. And in fact, like the conversation got to the point of just like, you know, like Cary Grant did deserve the Oscar for this, or at at least a nomination for it. Like it's a movie that only got two nominations um, for Claude Rains and for the story by Ben Hecht. And I mean, those are deserved, but it's a movie that really should have swept up better at that time. Um, and then I also picked up um, uh, on an opportunity to watch uh, some stuff from the archive that uh, Attaboy Clarence has been providing. And one of them is a movie called uh, Smart Blonde. And is the first in a series of Torchy Blaine um, uh, mystery stories. Um, so I'm new to this and I didn't really know much about this. I knew who Glenda Farrell was and I knew who Barton McLean was, but it's about as far as I went. So the story of Smart Blonde is Glenda Farrell plays Torchy Blaine. She's a uh, a journalist for the uh, journalist for a newspaper who uh, slowly but surely solves the crime of who knocked off a racketeer um, who was going to inherit the business of another racketeer. It's it's it's, it's kind of like the 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 mystery plot itself is kind of like doesn't really matter. You're there to watch. Glenda Farrell and Barton McLean interact with each other because Barton McLean plays her detective boyfriend. And I love the way this movie plays out. It's 60 minutes. And the setup of these films is essentially to give you the impression of a Nick and Nora relationship. But Barton McLean is the detective. You know, he's a little bit more stuck up. He doesn't think Torchy should be getting digging her nose into these crimes because she's a lady, number one, and because this is the 30s, and so they're gonna, you know, throw that that sexist curveball in there. But the um but Torchy has more than enough gumption to, you know, actually pick up on clues throughout the entire mystery. And I love that by the time the movie has ended and you get the conclusion, you find that Torchy Blaine has been the smartest character throughout the entire movie. And it's really wonderful to watch Glenda Farrell play that role. Um, and I think that Barton McLean is a good um, partner for her in that, uh, in that endeavor for that 
for that movie. So I'm very excited to watch more of these Torchy Blaine movies. Actually, Corinne, I think you might like these. <laughs> Just like watching a female reporter kicking ass through the 30s. It's not something you're going to see all too often. <laughs> um, I mean, I know you guys are always trying to get me to watch The Awful Truth, and I still haven't gotten through that first third or first half or whatever it is. Um, I mean, Torchy Blaine movies are only 60 minutes, so think of it as like a television show. <laughs> mm. um, I'm, I'm still in the first one. I'm going to be going through the rest of the series this week. Um, yeah, and then um, it was uh, 4th of July, and I normally don't do um, much 4th of July celebrating because, you know, it's I, the, I don't, I'm not a big fan of fireworks and um, you know, there's it, it's, a, it's a day like anything else uh, for a lot of uh, different reasons, but I was feeling in the mood to kick back to some World War II era films. Um, so I chose the year 1942 to kind of go through. So I started with um, a movie called Star Spangled Rhythm, uh, which I had never seen before, but it's been in my Bob Hope collection for a while. And I thought I'd finally put it in. Um, it's a uh, an ensemble variety movie, the kind of which were designed to be propaganda for World War II to rally up the rally up the home front for getting ready for war with the help of all your favorite celebrities at the time. In this case, this is from Paramount stock. Um, so every studio kind of did their own version of this, but Paramount was the, uh, this is their, this is their turn at bat. And the story is honestly kind of cool. It's just not super, like it's not perfectly executed. It's got a lot of flaws, but the main story is, Uh, A sailor and all his sailor buddies are coming home on shore leave. And um, one of the sailors, Johnny, uh, proclaims that his father, Bronco Billy, is the head of Paramount Studios. So he calls up his father via his secretary, uh, Peggy, by by, um, Betty Hutton. And Betty Hutton has not told Johnny that his father is not the head of the studio. He is, in fact, a security guard the shame but it's okay because she's got a plan to make it look like he is the head of the studio and so the movie kind of plays out as this you know you know trying to fool johnny into thinking that his father's the head of paramount as an excuse to go through the different sound stages of paramount and get involved with the different stars of paramount so you've got bing crosby hanging around you got bob hope hanging around you got veronica lake uh running around uh, you've got Donna Drake, um, who in the same year is appearing in Road to Morocco with Bob Hope um, in arguably in a, a, one of the most famous of the road movies. Um, and you uh, you have Cass Daly, who is a weird, obscure like period, uh, figure of the period. Um, but it all leads to the idea of like, OK, well, Peg and Johnny want to get married, but johnny's johnny can't go on any more shore leave so they they get around it by convincing the um their head officer that their that his father bronco is going to put on a show for all the soldiers with all the paramount stars and this unravels the whole plot that peg and bronco billy put up together of trying to fool his son because it's just like he's gonna find out i'm a fraud and but it's okay because Peg and uh, gets all the stars together. So she convinces Bob Hope and Bing Crosby to, uh, to uh, get themselves involved and wrangle all the other stars at the studio who they all shove into one or two convenient cars. It's like shoving a bunch of clowns into a car for a circus. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, 
back half of the movie for about 40 minutes is a series of vaudeville sketches uh, with your favorite movie stars uh, ending with Bing Crosby performing old glory. And that's where you get your war Crowley right. But the sketches are the main reason to watch the movie. Ultimately that and Victor Moore's performance as the father, Um, the sketches are a little scattered. Not all of them are great, but they all have their own unique little stem on it. One of them features Alan Ladd in a 30 second sketch where he plays a gangster that kills people with bows and arrows. Um, There's a very outdated sketch with Fred McMurray, Ray Milland, um, and uh, two other character actors of the era that I am forgetting at the moment um, who uh, are, they are, the setup is uh, because all the women are at work um, at the war plants, the setup is what if men played cards like women and it's, it's super dated. The, the biggest reason it has any attraction is to watch, Fred McMurray and Ray Milland kind of do some patter back and forth, but it's not that wonderful. Um, there is a great musical number though, um, featuring Veronica Lake, Dorothy L'Amour and um, uh, Paul Goddard, um, which the, the song is basically about their signature looks um, like uh, Paul Goddard being a sweater girl, Dorothy L'Amour and her sarong and uh veronica lake having one her hair over one of her eyes so she like only would show one eye um and then it turns into a uh into a what's ostensibly a drag performance with walter treacher um one other actor and sterling holloway the boy the man who would voice winnie the pooh um uh doing um playing essentially the role of veronica lake in the middle of the sketch um but hands down the best sketch um, or number in the movie has to do with Eddie Rochester Anderson uh, dancing a uh, dancing in a zoot suit to the song Sharp as Attack um, with this beautiful looking set um, and dancing this dance with Catherine Dunham, who um, I, I only knew her from Stormy Weather because her dance troupe is in it. But she apparently has this amazing history behind her that I want to do more for Ballyhoo. Um, the number is fantastic. Eddie is light on his feet. He's showing his vaudeville moves. It, it is the highlight of the movie for me, hands down. And I know I'm biased, but it, it and, and it has some Jack Benny references by the end of it. But it is like it is a treat to watch. Um, and then the last thing I watched was I went back to Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is an American classic. Um, <clears throat> movie still holds up. Only has one 15 to 20 second shot that is absolutely outdated and uh, abhorrent. Um, uh, Jim's Jimmy Cagney is still amazing in that movie. And when you think about Yankee Doodle Dandy, and I don't know if either of you have ever seen the movie, but there's something kind of wonderful about that movie in the respect that it, like, the, it's one of the most quote unquote patriotic movies ever made or the most American movies ever made. But the movie is not about anything to do with. America's history. The movie has everything to do with a show bit, a guy in showbiz who worked his way to the top, who has a fondness for the place he lives. Like that's what makes it so interesting as a piece of patriotic propaganda that it was made at the time, because it was considered a very patriotic movie of its time because of Cohan's connection to old glory and um till it's over we won't go back till it's over we won't come back till it's over over there 
um, songs that he wrote that were war cries for uh, rallies for World War One, and to watch how the movie unfolds in that respect, like the movie really is about like how a show business person kind of helped save America in a weird way. Like it's it's a it's it's interesting to think about in a couple of different layers from a weird historical perspective, um, but. It, it's a blast of a movie. And if you've ever needed proof that Michael Curtiz is the director that you should learn more about from that era, uh, this is one of the movies to watch alongside things like Casablanca and uh, Adventures of Robin Hood because it shows, and Mildred Pierce, because it just shows the different, um, the different ways that that director could sneak in and out of any genre he wanted to and come out uh, amazing on the other side. Like he could literally do everything. He's kind of like, it's it's clear that somebody like Spielberg loves somebody like Michael Curtiz because you have to be able to do everything. And those are the two filmmakers that I know off the top of my head that can kind of tackle any genre they choose to. So, so yeah, that's all I watched this week. Cool. I guess that brings us to the movie of the week. Cruella. Uh, Corinne, did you enjoy Cruella? I did, although I gotta say that I considered going to see it again this weekend, and I was kind of like, even though I have a regal pass, I'm just not, like, dying to see it again. Like, it was an an entertaining watch the first time, but it's not one of those movies that I think you really, you're like, oh my gosh, that was so cool, I really gotta see it again. Like, it almost felt like it would have been homework to go see it a second time, even, like, a month later. But, you know, I would probably rewatch it in like a year or two. But yeah, it was uh, the costumes were great. I thought the acting was pretty good. The soundtracks, maybe there were a couple too many needle drops. But I mean, it's still pretty fun. It has a lot of energy to it. Um, The twists, I think, are good. I know some people on the Internet were making fun of like the first like major thing that happens in the movie. And I'm like, I don't understand what everyone's problem with this is. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more after spoilers, but I mean, overall, it's a fun movie. It's, you know, serviceably entertaining. Zach, what do you think of Cruella? Well, um, I don't understand why the internet gets angry over anything anymore because I really enjoyed this movie. Um, it's not perfect. Um, but my, my problems with it are probably aesthetic more than anything else in terms of, Uh, certain creative choices made from the filmmaking standpoint, not story or anything. Um, The needle drops might've been one of my major complaints, but I really, I'll tell you at the behest of, or at the risk of sounding like I'm going to piss off uh, anybody out there who's a fan of Joker. Cause I, I've grown to appreciate that movie a little bit better, but I think this movie does a better job at what Joker was trying to do or did successfully, arguably, um, which is use a use an IP character to tell a unique and different story that isn't getting made in the current studio system. Because this is not the movie I was expecting, <laughs> and I actually enjoyed a lot of the movie that I got out of it. Um, I think Emma Stone is pretty wonderful in it. Um, I liked um, seeing Paul Walter Hauser in the movie again. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, and um, 
and just the feel of it and the energy of it, it, it Corinne is very spot on. It's got a very nice feel to it and an energy to it that I, you know, it, the movie's a little long, but it still kept me hooked. Like I did need to know, like, how is this going to resolve itself and uh, props to it for keeping its hooks in me. So yeah, I, I would watch it. It's, it's totally fun. Um, and I, I think it's actually a fun theater watch. Like it's, it's got a nice, vibrancy to it that it's like you would want to watch this on a big screen especially with some of the sequences involving Cruella DeVille and her fashion shows so yeah check it out guys Cruella's fun stop complaining <laughs> I will agree with Zach I do think it's about 15 minutes too long yeah and as far as like the whole uh, comparisons with the Joker I will admit that they are in different genres this feels more like a and just just like a general adventure not like adventure adventure but you know just more like family friendly sort of a thing whereas joker is definitely like way in deep into drama territory right no my 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 point hey oh sorry go ahead let's let's say some stuff for after the trailer guys okay fair (laughs) enough um brad what'd you think of the corella yeah i I said it uh, like a month ago i thought it was a lot of fun um you know 101 dalmatians is not a precious story to me so I'm fine. Go nuts. Change it out however much you want. Um, I enjoyed the music. Um, it is all the way through the movie. Uh, I don't think there's a single moment that doesn't have a pop song uh, from the 70s or 80s uh, in it. Um, the production design is gorgeous. Um, I, it's a fun time. Uh, I do have a thing that Corinne has where I like wasn't rushing out to see it again. Um, but uh, that might just be because I'm really busy right now, and uh, I would, you know, if this popped on, I would probably watch it, you know, un- unprovoked. So, uh, yeah, hey, here's the trailer for Cruella. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels you're dead. If I'd cared about anyone or thing, I might have died. You have the talent. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question. She thought she owned everyone. It's foolish. Unhinged. Or you're fired. Why are you speaking? I think you've licked me. But there's something about poetic justice that's just so poetic. You won't admit you love me. And so, how do you delight to know you always tell me? Get her. This doesn't have to be a scene. It really, really does. Can I remind you all that I'm doing this in heels? Oops. What was your name? Cruella. If you can make your mind. to make trouble you in i do love trouble you have a bit of an extreme side yes darling and what fun that is she stole my dogs (laughs) i guess you must hate her she has made it me or her and i choose me Don't worry, there's lots more bad things coming. Perhaps 
Right. Now go on. Um, no, yeah, I was going to say, Corinne, that like the, I, I totally agree with you that it's not, it's not trying to delve into like deep societal drama issues that it kind of treats with a bit of more of a, like a blank slate, but, um, the movie does attempt to tell a more daring story for Disney, number one, but number two, um, just the idea of we're, we're going to make a movie about uh, basically a heist revenge murder story set in the world of 101 Dalmatians. And we're using it primarily as an excuse to make this homage to 70s fashion, the punk rock scene, and the the idea of these of this general vibe of like, you know, small time crooks pulling off jobs like that, that kind of movie that can't get made unless it has some kind of big name attached to it or some kind of IP attached to it. Like Craig Gillespie does a good job at finding a way to make a movie that doesn't have to rely on being faithful 100% to the source material or to the material that it's, you know, capitalizing off of. That was more my deal with it. Uh, so yeah, the Corella is the story of Corella DeVille. We find out that she was a, uh, what's the word? Oh my God. Orphan? Like, not an orphan, but like, esoteric child yes um who loves her mother and her mother works for the countess uh before being the baroness oh baroness <laughs> good thing zach saw this last night or a couple <laughs> hours ago five minutes five minutes i was ago. thinking it was the baroness too full disclosure i saw this movie like up to the last minute because I thought it was available on Disney plus, And then I got home from work, popped on Disney plus and saw it was this premier access bullshit. And I was just like, guys, we got to start the show 30 minutes late. <laughs> no, it's like, so Mulan and now this are in the premier access, but Luca and, um, I, Oh, and soul. Basically the Pixar movies just got dropped on there included with your subscription but all the disney movies oh no 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 you gotta pay premium dollar for that you know what i'm happy to have paid for cruella in that respect for the theater but i'm not giving disney my money directly they got to get through get it through the landmark services first before they can get their hands on it uh yeah anyway uh her mother is killed by the baroness's dogs who are dalmatians (laughs) Uh, okay, so this, that's the part that, like, everyone on the internet was, and I saw spoilers before I went to see the movie, and everyone was like, oh, I can't believe, like, this is Cruella's origin story. What are we going to find out next? Like, Gaston's mother was killed by a bookshelf falling on her or something, and that's why <laughs> that he hates <laughs> smart women. Wait, Corinne, that would be hilarious. <laughs> I I, don't, I forget, did, uh, Cruella didn't watch... Like we saw that as the audience, but didn't she just think her mother committed suicide? Um, uh, no, that, I that, thought she, I thought saw she but, saw no, the dogs kill no, her, but she, she thought that the dogs she, were. Like, she thought that the dogs killed her because the dogs were after her and missed her right. and just went after her mother and pushed her off of the side of the. Really? Yeah, she didn't realize like the Baroness was using the dog whistle to call the dogs to attack 
which again it's it's Mom. really cool how they kind of set up that reveal like those those sort of those some of those reveals um well, I was confused because she didn't vow revenge on the dogs so that's no she didn't she didn't she just she was lost and then she just found a way well, she, she thought she was responsible so that's why i forgot exactly so that's why it's kind of pointless to uh to get angry about the dalmatians at the beginning that's really what they were upset about corinne <laughs> seriously i don't understand like once i saw it in the movie i was like why are people so upset about this like it's i mean yeah okay it was a little ridiculous seeing dogs push a woman off a cliff not gonna lie okay but it was kind of happenstance that they just happened to be dalmatians it could have been any kind of dog but because this is you know cruella it's gotta be dalmatians so, or I mean, it could almost have been just a mix of dogs. It could have been like some Dalmatian, some German Shepherd, or Dash Hound, or whatever. You know, could have been underdog. You don't know. Oh, God dang it! It's just so odd. Who cares? Anyway, but yes, she she thinks that she's responsible for her mother's death. She makes it over to London, and uh, there she she meets a young Jasper and Horace stealing things out of the. Uh, stealing coins out of the fountain and she becomes a part of their crime family, which is really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. I thought that like all the those three do all the heists together was fun. Yeah. It, it's like, it's one of those, like it's one of those gangster stories where I'm just like, no, no, this is designed specifically to be childish and fun. And I, I can accept this. <laughs> yeah. Like you guys said, the movie was long, but I could have kept watching like the, 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 the heists are fun. And then the traps she laid out for the Baroness, like mm. we're all, like creative or creative like they're just fun to watch i i totally agree I, the the only parts of the movie that drag for me that make me think it's about 15 minutes too long is they are they, they are sitting in a few too many ancillary moments for my taste like it's it's almost more or less just like trimming around the edges and maybe shortening a couple of things but there is one particular shot where i'm glad they didn't touch a frame and they kept it in that one shot there is uh it's a little bit later in the discussion, I guess, but when she uh, finds out the big reveal about the Baroness uh, and uh, she goes back to visit the fountain and talk to her mother. And it's like, it's, it's really good. It's really good performance from Emma Stone there in, in this ostensibly fun, like homage to a character and a symbol of Disney rather than necessarily the, the, the story itself, you know? I really um, like the, where she uses like where they say cicadas or moths. Mm-hmm. I think, I think moths. it was moths. Yeah, but yeah. Like, I didn't like they didn't register to me as cocoons. I just thought they were like gold stones. So the fact that they were like moths, no, I thought there it, was it, yeah there was something on the box I thought that said that tipped me off at least so the, the fact that they were like bugs of some kind. Well, I thought they were like sculptures of bugs. So the fact that they're actually real moths, just you know waiting and lying awake to destroy everything which is like oh my god that's like so devious um mm-hmm. like not only is it like this piece of art but like it also destroys everything else she has like that's uh, great and then i was worried too like um you know cruella kind of starts to like move off the deep end and become a, like abusive to jasper and horace and i was like i know cruella is supposed to be evil by the cartoon but like like they were good friends at the beginning of this movie. I, it would be really tough to accept narratively that she doesn't come back from this. And I'm glad that that, you know, she eventually found herself at the edge and came back and realized, you know, 
That's like I like the revisionist version of this where she is like kind to those guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's my 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 prior love of 101 Dalmatians had to kind of be checked at the door automatically, but I loved they they did a good job at setting up how their interactions work at the beginning that it justifies any revisionism that they dare do because that that's what solid storytelling is allowed to be rewarded and they achieve it because Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser are fucking wonderful as Jasper and Horace. Like they are fucking fantastic in this movie. Like mm-hmm. I have God one, uh, damn it. <laughs> I have someone recently pointed out to me though, like one revision thing that might be problematic. Uh, so the three dogs that, uh, the three Dalmatians of the movie have one of them has puppies, and then in the post credits, Cruella gives each of those puppies from that litter to eventually the romantic Anita and Roger. Anita and Roger, so meaning that Pongo Ponda and Perdita are siblings, are siblings. So the litter from one Dalmatians are going to be incest dogs, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, see, okay, this is, like, my whole thing about the... So, like, on its own, the movie, like I said, is entertaining. But now, like, since I watched it, I've heard, like, oh, they're going to make a sequel, and they might try to tie it into, like, the Glenn Close 101 Dalmatians or something. I'm not entirely sure. But just even making a sequel just seems so weird to me because I'm, like, I would rather have this as, like, you know, kind of like on its own, like maybe this is some kind of uh, alternate universe version of Cruella where it's like, you think she's going to be bad and she kind of ends up being more of like an anti-heroine or something, you know, Um, where it's like, you know, the events of 101 Dalmatians don't happen or if they do, they don't happen the same way because of the history that we see in this movie of like you know she actually doesn't mind the dogs and she ends up you know keeping them and she doesn't turn them into a fur coat and she has all this you know drama with her mom and she likes Anita and Roger and she gives them the puppies and everything so it's like yeah like as like an AU version of 101 Dalmatians like this succeeds but if you're gonna try to tie it in and end up making her a villain and making you know, having Pongo and Perdita be related or whatever, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, the Baroness is really the, the Cruella character from the main story. She's she was arrested though; she wasn't killed, so she could be she could come back and get revenge. Probably, yeah. But yeah, it, it is weird that Cruella Deville, the villain from the the source material, is now an antihero. It's like, yeah, where does that character? go next because you know Emma Stone is not going to play like a devious villain and like hatch some scheme to ruin people's lives in the next one like the, well but here's here's something to consider and why I think Corinne is correct I, mean, I guess both are correct to like that it this should stay on its own is because I don't know how much you guys remember of this, but coming off of this right away, this is like, is this movie PG 13? I couldn't remember the rating or whatever, but this movie is PG. I'm going to look it up. This movie has fucking Emma stone getting drunk off her ass. This movie has 
like an audacious nature about it that is not usually the Disney norm. And I was like really excited watching it going like, man, like this is really fucking cool that they're getting away with all this shit. But then it reminded me. It is PG-13. Okay. That makes a total lot of sense because this movie is like completely off its rocker in that regard. And it's, I love it to death for that. Um, But it also sets up the fact that like, because of where you end up with Cruella, it doesn't make sense to try to go any further with this. Like it is really like a perfect little capsulated story in and of itself that doesn't need expansion. The mid credit sequence is there to appease the fans who are pissed off about the first five minutes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, like I, I don't think you need any more of it. I would love to see her play the role again, but I just don't, I, I think this is kind of perfect on its own. So yeah, I think you go the alternate universe route and she just becomes a dog savior or maybe like, um, you know, no, no real fur person. I don't know. Yeah. Cause it also, but at least just one where she isn't a villain. She's not trying to, she's not out here trying to kill dogs. She respects dogs. Even if she, maybe she doesn't like those particular ones cause they killed her mom or whatever, but she at least tolerates them enough to keep them around. And she, you know, gives Anita and Roger the puppies. And, but also like how, the only way that Disney can do anything close to trying to, to bleed into the actual 101 Dalmatians territory and appease people who want like accuracy or something is that they would have to just turn that dial a little bit where Cruella becomes more unhinged. And so suddenly the, the pup, the, the Dalmatians are now like an obsession with her because of the one time she said they make a great coat. Like, (laughs) like it's as though like the, like now she decides to take it to the next level. Um, but then again, she made a fur, a fake fur, whatever design that was so convincing people really, they thought it was real. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, well, you know, of course it's not like I would never hurt an animal like that. So it's like, if you, if you can make something that convincing, why would you even bother doing something, you know, actually killing a dog just to get the fur off of it? Yeah. If you could make a fake fur convincing enough. Exactly. And also, this is not taking place in the 60s when the first movie was released, when a fur coat would have been a much more desirable item. At, whereas in even into the 70s, you start having people, you know, rightfully act, protesting against the skinning of animals and such. Um, I can I, I'll tell you what now, like, I think like people are getting hung up on the whole is she going to skin a puppy thing? And really like the beauty of what the movie has accomplished. And I think it's something that should be celebrated in a very positive way is, is that it took three characters from 101 Dalmatians, like it's three focus characters of Cruella, Jasper and Horace and took the dynamic that they have throughout 101 Dalmatians and all its subsequent iterations and expanded upon it in a way that ultimately is a lot more entertaining if you were going to go down the route of making a solo villain movie, I think they pulled off the best possible version of that by expanding upon, well, what is the interaction between these three when we're not seeing them on screen? Because half the time in 101 Dalmatians, we're just watching the dogs interacting with each other or we're watching Roger and Benita, but, um, uh, uh, or Roger and Anita, but, 
I think we've proved with Cruella that there's a lot of interactions that could be going on and a lot of interpersonal relationships that could be going on with it. And that's like kind of the what if scenario that they played under. That's pretty fucking cool. Um, but yeah. I was going to say something and then I totally forgot what it was. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to go long winded. I was just trying to find like this, like positive, like spark amidst the whole debate about whether or not the dog should be a a fur coat. (laughs) Oh, I, Oh, two things actually. So on the whole, like, Oh, but you know, sequel and her making a fur coat out of the dogs. I'm, I'm like, okay, she has dogs. She can either skin her own dogs and make them into a fur coat or she could just have you know the dogs have another litter of puppies and then she can skin them for a fur coat so i don't know why she'd necessarily be needing to go after perdita and pongo and their and their kids if they had them you know and then the second thing was like and technically this isn't a live action remake because it's technically a prequel to 101 dalmatians but even so like it's a lot better than the other Disney live action remakes just because it is so different. Like, yeah, you've got some elements, some key elements, the characters, the names, the Dalmatians, but it's its own thing. It's kind of in the the world of it, but the vibe is completely different. Mm-hmm. Now, now can, can I make one complaint about the movie from a fanboy standpoint? Sure. I mean, isn't that what we're here for? uh, No, 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 I know. But like, if everybody else is allowed to uh, quibble about ancillary things, I want to do it too and have fun. There was no mention of canine crunchies, the the dog treat that is being advertised on the television. And there is no mention of the wonderful television show, What's My Crime, where panelists are asked to guess what crime the guest has committed before they are sent back to prison. Uh, There, end rant. See? Very simple. My only. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because not a lot of people like. Oh, no, I'm nobody sure would get people, those jokes. <laughs> I mean, you know, Brad, chime in if you want. But I would say, like, for me, at least, like, I peripherally remember things about um, 101 Dalmatians. Like, obviously, you remember Corella. You remember that she wants the puppies to, like, make a fur coat out of them. And maybe some Jasper and Horace and like her driving like a maniac and the Labrador trying to rescue the puppies with the snow and everything. So it's like, you might remember some details, but you're not going to remember something so specific like canine crunchies that it might just completely fly over your head. Oh, yeah. Unless you were like a 100, like if you had just seen the movie, like maybe you would get it. But I think most people, that's not one that you rewatch a lot as, as far as like the Disney canon goes. No, nor Thunderbolt, the uh, the dog show that the dogs watch that they're all obsessed with, which is like their version of like a Rin Tin Tin uh, kind of scenario. But uh, you you mentioned the driving. I loved the way Emma Stone looked when she was driving. Like it was so spot on with her her arms dangling and her just looking like the devil herself. Like it's just, ah, oh God, it was wonderful. That was like a good looking shot that recalled the animation of uh, the 60s version. That was like really spot on and really well done. Didn't didn't really fly you when it's fly it in your face. Just it's a very nice touch in a getaway scene. That is fantastic. Um, And also like, but yeah, Corinne, I I don't know how often uh, how much of the needle drops you remember, but there was way too many for me. (laughs) 
in terms of the music like there was so many like songs switching from one to the other like at rapid succession i was like a little overwhelmed by it rad i don't know it wasn't any i think like the first maybe third or half it was enough but then i think like as it went on i was like oh my gosh like how many more needle drops do we get which is funny because thinking back i feel like there were more in the first half like especially when she's working in the department store but i don't know i don't think there's that many yeah i don't think there's that many needle drops in a scorsese movie it was kind of insane (laughs) definitely an expensive soundtrack (laughs) (laughs) so next week uh we're seeing marvel's back we're seeing black widow so yeah You, you mean it's actually coming out this time uh they got a week to decide so it's oh god no i don't want to wait i don't want to wait on pins and needles again for this <laughs> i'm excited it's gonna be fun are we doing this all in person again for uh, uh, uh to see the movie sorry i mean i i would hope so but you know the way things are going i doubt it <laughs> just because of our schedules <laughs> what? yeah oh like we've been off the pandemic for almost twice as long as it went. Um, we haven't gotten together for a movie at all. So fingers crossed it happens for this one. You know what? Even if Ryan and James can't make it, Corinne, Brad, let's let's go watch Black Widow together on Saturday. I mean, as long as you guys are willing to go to a Regal Theater, sure thing. Come on, Corinne. Treat yourself to the Alamo and live a little. Hey. I get free stuff at the Regal. I went on, what was it, Friday? When I went to see F9, I got in for free. I got my free popcorn and a free drink. Cha-ching! But, but, but it's, the, it's the camaraderie of the friendship of the Alamo, which is the home base of the Real Nerds podcast, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. I guess we can just go our own separate ways and watch it wherever we want to watch it. <laughs> so yeah, stay tuned to next week. We'll talk we about black widow record in person actually that'd be hey, fine that's the compromise we find that would be an achievement as well yeah until next week bye very well thank you for listening to this episode of real nerds podcast real nerds podcast is a production of nebulous visions multimedia Thank you to Sparks Mandrill and Plan 9 Studios for our kick-ass theme song. Also, if you're in the Denver area and you're looking for a cool place to see movies, we see them at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton and now also in Sloan's Lake. Thank you to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics for supplying us with all our comic needs, especially you, Andrew. You know who you are. And a big shout-out to James's mom. I'm giving you an electronic hug that you can feel through the airwaves. Thanks for listening, and have a nice day.